So, uh, I'm very excited to teach on the doctrine of justification. Uh, justification is the central doctrine on which the church stands or falls. If you don't understand justification, let me say it very boldly, you don't understand the gospel. Right? So it's that crucial. So the first, uh, so I'm going to walk, hopefully it'll be helpful to you, I'm going to walk through it very carefully, very logically. The first thing you need to understand is that justification is a verdict. <clears throat> and what do I mean by verdict? This is not a good pen. I forgot your pen. Um, justification is a verdict. And I mean by verdict, I mean in the legal sense. Okay? So uh, imagine that you are a defendant in court. You are accused of murder. And uh, so what happens then in the court proceedings. The prosecutor lays out his case. He lays out all of the uh, evidence against you. And then the, uh, your uh, defense attorney um, you know, defends you, presents uh, the evidence in, in your favor. And at the end of the case, what happens? You receive a verdict of either you're guilty or you're innocent. And so uh, a verdict is a legal declaration of guilt or innocence. And in the Bible, that's what justification is. Justification is a verdict that you receive um, of righteousness. So first, what is righteousness? Let's. Uh, what would be sort of the you know the the easy, breezy definition of righteousness? It doesn't have to be all technically correct and, you know, theologically, like, saturated with vocabulary. What is righteousness? Pure good. Um, pure in what sense? Because that's a metaphor, too, right? Yes, right? So we, we typically think of righteousness in terms of morality, right? Of goodness and holiness and the absence of sin, the presence of obedience and goodness, right, and, and doing good things. Um, and I think that uh, in that sense, secular modern people will look at this, the verdict of righteousness, and sort of roll their eyes, right, because it seems entirely irrelevant, unimportant. They don't care. Um, they don't care about morality. You know, it seems like a religious, a religious thing. So I just want to, uh, before we pr press on, I just want to show you that in the Bible, righteousness has a very broad and wide meaning that encompasses more than just morality, okay? And you can see it in Romans 3.23. It's not there in the bullet. It's not there in your handout, but let me read to you. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So we fall short of the glory of God. Notice that Paul describes righteousness in terms of glory. And if you understand it like that, I think it's a lot more relevant than people realize because righteousness, I want you to think of it as significance, worth, um, achievement, accomplishment, um, identity, right? And in, in that sense, everybody is looking for righteousness. Everybody's looking for this verdict of righteousness. Everyone needs righteousness, whether you're religious or not. So the classic example that every pastor uses um, is from the movie Chariots of Fire, which is about the 1924 Paris Olympics. 
Um, it's a story of this uh, athlete named Harold Abrams. He's preparing for the, he's training for the 100 meter dash, which is sort of the premier event of the Olympics. And um, you see the, the movie, it's actually a relatively boring movie, <laughs> but you see him training, you see him preparing, you see him getting ready. And then finally the fateful day, and uh, he's in the locker room, the training room with his coach. He's anxious. It's moments before the race. He's getting massaged. And he has this great line that everybody uses. He says, Harold Abrams says, I have 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. He's thinking about the race, right? 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. And so when he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my whole existence, is he talking about justification in a moral sense, in terms of morality and holiness? Of course not. What is he talking about? He's saying that at the end of the race, he's going to receive a verdict. And the verdict will be either that he is worth, worthy, that he has accomplished, he will receive acclaim and praise, the crowds will cheer, or the verdict will be you're a loser, you are a nobody, you're worth nothing, all those years mean nothing, right? So he's talking about in terms of wor his worth as a human being. And therefore, I want to show you that this verdict, we're all looking for this verdict of righteousness. We're all looking for someone on the outside of us to tell us that we have worth, that we have value. Um, and you can't do it to yourself. I remember uh, when I was uh, in high school, I used to watch Saturday Night Live, and there was a character named Stuart Smiley. Um, and this character, would, uh, was sort of anxious, felt um, unsure of himself, and so he would have these daily affirmations where he would look into the mirror and look at his own picture, his own image, and he would say, you know, you're, you're smart, you're handsome, you know, people like you, and it was very funny because it's ridiculous, right? You can't, only crazy people give themselves a verdict, right? Um, and not only that, it doesn't really work, it doesn't stick. And so we need an authoritative voice from the outside to tell us you're worthwhile, you're valuable. And so that leads me to my next question. What is our justification based on? So let's go back to the trial setting, the court setting. Suppose you're a defendant in court. You're accused of murder. You're waiting for your verdict. What is the verdict based on? Evidence. Evidence. That's right. The prosecution lays out his case. Eric, you're on trial. Eric, we saw the surveillance video. You carrying a knife. And then you plunged it into the victim. And there was blood all over you. We have DNA evidence of your blood at the crime scene. We have several eyewitnesses who saw you do it. <laughs> we caught you with blood, the blood of the victim all over you, right? That's, that would be evidence, right, that you're guilty. Or your defense attorney could say, actually, that was Eric's twin brother, right? <laughs> <laughs> dun, 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 right? Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, or, or Eric has a solid alibi. Right? There's no video surveillance, but at the time of the murder, Eric was, was, was at, was at um, he was watching Civil War at the movie theater. Here's his ticket stub, right? Here's the surveillance video of him buying the ticket and everything. Um, for er Harold Abrams, what is his verdict based on? 
his verdict is based on his athletic performance, right? And if, if that is the case, right, if the verdict is based on evidence, how do we receive this verdict of righteousness? If it's based on evidence, we're doomed, right? Um, because God is the judge. God knows everything. He knows what we do. He knows all of our secret thoughts. And then when he weighs the evidence of our lives against the perfect standard of righteousness, the sentence, the verdict will be guilty, right? Death, judgment. But here is the good news of the gospel. Our verdict, our justification is not based on our moral performance. It's not based on uh, the evidence of our lives. And I just want you to realize how strange and how counterintuitive this is, right? Come and join us. There's handouts over there. So let's go back to the, let's go back to the trial, right? Eric is on trial. <laughs> he is the defendant in the murder case. The evidence is laid out. The first, the, the prosecution is absolutely, you know, correct. There's video surveillance, there's blood splattered. We, we have the murder weapon, we have the DNA evidence. The evidence is irrefutable, but suppose at the end of the trial, the judge says the verdict is innocence, right? And everyone, everyone in the crowd gasps. Um, this, in the face of the evidence, you're innocent. That is the gospel, okay? Um, and the, the key verse here is Romans 3, 20 to 23. Um, Eric, can I have you read it? And uh, I will probably interrupt you as you read along, so let's read it. For by works of the law. Stop right there. So, <laughs> so that's a very important phrase. Works of the law. Um, what do we mean by works of the law? Maybe if you read the whole phrase, it'll be clear. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So what do we mean by works of the law? Yes. So it's deeds, right? We uh, works, deeds of righteousness, right? Or you could just say good works or good deeds. Okay. So so let's continue. Keep keep, keep reading from the beginning. Okay. Eric. For by works of the law, no human being would be justified. Right, so let me just say, let me just stop and pause for a second again, right? So what is Paul saying? He's saying we receive this verdict not, not based on works of the law, not based on good deeds, obedience, good works. In other words, not based on the evidence. Keep going. Uh, not, no Sense. human being will be. That's uh why -huh. in his sight, uh -huh. since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right, stop right there. So what is that saying? <clears throat> through, the, through the law comes knowledge of sin. We don't know Lots. there's sin unless you know the law. Yeah. yeah. Right, so you could think of the law as the measuring stick. How can you know if you're doing good works? How can you know if you're accumulating evidence in your favor for this verdict? The law. But actually the law doesn't give you righteousness, all it tells you is how far you fall short, right? Um, you, it, it shows you uh, uh, the enormous gap. Keep reading, verse 21. 
But now the righteousness of God. Okay, stop right there. So that's an, another important phrase. Righteousness of God. See, the difficulty in reading Paul is that he's writing um, in such a compact way, very densely, so he doesn't spell everything out. But what he means by righteousness of God is he means the verdict. The verdict of righteousness. Okay? Keep going. But now? But now the righteousness of God has manifested apart from the law, Uh Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Right. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that we receive the righteousness of God, the verdict of righteousness. What what is it not based on and what is it based on? What what is Paul saying? What is it, first of all, what is it not based on? The law. The law. Or Works, right? Obedience, good deeds, right? <coughs> Moral living, clean living. It's not based on that. Do you guys hear that? What therefore is it based on? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's right. Through faith, we receive it by faith. I'll talk a little bit about how, how uh, the role of faith in there. But ultimately, it's not our righteousness, our obedience, but whose obedience? Whose good works? Jesus, right? Christ. And therefore, what Paul is saying is that in justification, we are justified sinners. <coughs> I, <laughs> if you've been in the church, you've probably heard this phrase, and we, you sort of get inured to it. But I want you to feel the rub. I want you to feel the oddity. I want you to feel the, the insanity of this expression. We are justified sinners. Do you feel the paradox? Why is this a paradoxical, nonsensical, almost nonsensical statement? Jamie, you're, you're nodding your head. If you nod, if you make any motion other than perfect stillness, I will hone in on you. It's just complete opposites. It's only separate spectrums almost. That's right. Because it, it's like this, right? If you go back to the murder trial scenario, right? It's basically saying you're an innocent murderer. That's what it is. You are an innocent murderer. You are a justified sinner. Do you understand? Or to go to Harold Abrams' analogy, you're a gold medal winner who got last place. Do you understand? This is, this is, this is, do you feel the rub of it? Um, Luther has a fantastic phrase to sort of capture the paradox of this. Of course, it's in Latin, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and sinner. So that in actuality and indeed, in the reality of your life, you are a sinner, right? You fall short of the glory of God. All the evidence points towards your guilt. You are a murderer. You have, you're, you're covered in blood. But in terms of the verdict, in terms of the declaration, the, 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 ju- the judge's declaration, you're innocent. You're righteous. You're acceptable, worthy, approved. Okay? You see the, the, the enormous paradox of this in Luke 18, famous uh, parable by Jesus. Can I, Elizabeth, have you read it? Jesus also, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, 
one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men's, uh, the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, pause right there. So Jesus tells a story of a Pharisee, and he's looking for a verdict. And he is basing his verdict on works of the law. And like a good defense attorney, he lays out all of the evidence before God. God is the judge. He says, God, judge my life. He lays out all the evidence of his life. What is the evidence? There is plenty of good evidence. He tithes. He fasts. He abstains from sexual immorality. He abstains from criminal activity. This man, you want him as your neighbor, right? He, he's part of Neighborhood Watch. Um, <laughs> he... Uh, when you're away, he'll collect your mail, right? Um, if, you leave your, if, if you leave a valuable, your iPhone out, he will pick it up, keep it, until you come home and then he'll give it to you. He, you want him as your neighbor. He lays out all the evidence. And then let's look at the second person, uh, Elizabeth. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Okay. So the other person Jesus talks about is a tax collector. Now, um, for us, we just think, you know, some sort of like busy bureaucrat, right? But you have to understand the original context of the first century Palestine. A tax collector was essentially a gangster. He was basically a shakedown artist, and he would extort people for excessive exorbitant amounts of money. He was essentially a criminal. He was a gangster colluding with the hated, oppressive Romans, preying on his own people. A tax collector is essentially the worst, the worst thing that you could possibly be. I mean, imagine a drug dealer who kills babies on the side. That's what a tax collector is, right? And so this tax collector, he is also looking for a verdict. Do you, do you see that? He is looking for a verdict. He goes before the judge. And he realizes all the evidence points against righteousness. He doesn't look to works of the law. He doesn't look to his life. All he does, he falls on his knees. He pleads for mercy. He says, please have mercy. And then Jesus' parable is a bombshell because the deepest instinct of our hearts is to base our justification on the evidence of our lives, right? On the, on the record of our lives. And so you have two men. One is a holy man, a religious teacher. One is a gangster criminal. And Jesus says that the gangster criminal received the verdict of righteousness. Right? The judge is looking at these two men, and the judge looks at the gangster and says, verdict righteousness. He looks at the holy religious man. He says, you do not receive justification. You do not. Um, your verdict is guilty. Right? And the reason is because the, the Pharisee depended on his moral performance, and the tax collector um, despaired of his performance and looked only for mercy. Let's read. <laughs> this story is so scandalous. This story is insane. We don't really believe this story because our natural instincts is always, always to, to look to our performance. That's how we feel good about ourselves, right? How do we know that we're right with God? Well, we look at our lives. Am I a good person? Do I do good things? But Jesus completely destroys that. Galatians 2. Uh, Maggie, can I have you read that? We know that a person is not justified by what 
Okay, stop right there. Do you understand, right? Paul is saying the same thing Jesus is saying in Luke. He is also saying the same thing he himself said in Romans 3, right? That you are not justified by works of the law, by obedience to the law. But keep going. It's a little bit redundant, if you notice his, his syntax and phrasing. It's redundant for a reason. It's almost like Paul knows that you're not going to believe it. So he keeps saying it over and over and over again. You're not justified by works of the law, but we receive it through faith in Christ. Christ is based on his obedience, and we receive it through faith. Faith is not some meritorious work on our part, but it's the empty hand. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on. Um, so here I have an illustration, right? I'm always looking for illustrations of justification. I thought of an illustration, Charlotte's Web, uh, by E.B. White. Fantastic children's story. Um, if you know the story, it's about Wilbur, this little diminutive um, pig on Zuckerberg's farm. He's going, to be he's going to be fattened, raised, and slaughtered. He finds out. He's tearful. He's distraught. He's uh, beside himself with anxiety. And then little Charlotte... A spider says, I will save you. And so she comes up with a plan. She's going to spin these webs with words in them as a way to save his life. So the first word that she spells is, who knows that story? What's the first words? Some pig. That's right. And everyone is, it's a miracle. How did these words and for some reason, they don't attribute it to the spider. They attribute it to the pig, right? Obviously, because it says some pig. So like, wow! So people come visiting. It's amazing. And there's all this hoopla. And then it dies down. And Charlotte knows that that's not enough to save Wilbur's life. She has to do it again. So she, she gathers all the barn animals. And they're having a conference. What word can I spin next? And they're thinking. They're brainstorming. And then they finally come up with the word terrific. And Wilbur is very worried about this word. He's very stressed. And he says to Charlotte, he says, but, but, I don't feel terrific. I'm just an average pig. How can you spin the word terrific? And uh, Charlotte, fantastic, this is the gospel. Charlotte says it doesn't matter whether you actually are terrific. It doesn't matter, matter whether you feel terrific. All that matters is what I write in the web. That's what people will read. That's the gospel. Is Wilbur terrific? He's average, right? But it, what matters is the verdict. Okay, so that's justification. I'm done with the lesson. Um, <laughs> the rest of the classes, I'm just filling out the details. Um, but before we move on, any questions, any clarifying questions before we work out the significance and the details of it? Mm -hmm. I go through Kaiser and counseling and all that, and that's all. I mean, they basically say look in the mirror to look <laughs> I mean, it's a very self-affirmation. Yeah, so in, in psychology, what they've discovered is that a lot of the problems that you experience has to do with something called esteem. Um, and they've discovered that esteem is a sense of worth. If you have high esteem, 
you will be able to go out into life with confidence, you'll be resilient, you'll be able to endure criticism, and you'll be able to endure um, difficulties and challenges in life. If you have low esteem, you get constantly battered down. A wind blows you down and you fall down and you stay down. So they've discovered this. A lot has to do with your emotional, uh, your emotional um, psychological health has to do with esteem. How do you get esteem? And uh, the traditional way you get esteem is through accomplishments. I feel esteem because look at what I've done. I've gotten A's in schools, look at my athletic performance, and so forth and so forth. So, so what psychology says is, okay, well, we need to give esteem. You need to just assign yourself esteem, self-esteem, right? Just, uh, uh, just tell yourself that you're worthy and, and significant. What, 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 actually, what they've discovered in psychology is that A, it doesn't work, or B, what it does is it gives you an inflated sense of worth that is disconnected from reality. So you have a lot of like self-entitled, privileged kids growing up. Um, this whole revolution happened during the 80s and 90s, right? Um, the gospel says, yes, the problem is correct. The diagnosis is correct. You need esteem. But you need a voice on the outside giving you that esteem. And you need a love relationship who loves you, who sees you all the way up and down. And they look at you. They see all your flaws and they say, you're worthy. I love you. And we get that from, in the gospel, we get that from God. So I don't know if that answers your, your question. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I just feel crazy. <laughs> All right, so let's go on. Um, third point, justification is double imputation. Very, very significant, right? Um, we're going to spend a lot of time. Is double imputation. So this word impute means basically, it's an accounting term. It means to assign... It means to credit. It means to attribute. Um, and uh, let me so let me give you an, an, an example, okay, to illustration, to 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 describe what attribute means. So uh, let's say you are an account manager, and you're looking at your ledger, and there are two accounts, account A and account B. Account A has one hundred dollars, and account B has nothing. And you decide that you are going to transfer the $100 to account B. So you transfer it. So you punch it into your, your computer. You do, you do a few mouse clicks, a few um, punches of the keyboard. That is to impute. It doesn't, it has nothing to do necessarily with whether B actually owns the $100. It has nothing to do with whether B earned the $100. Because suppose you are a dishonest accountant and B is your good friend. So you decide to just um, impute the $100 from A to B. That's what impute means. Does that, does that make sense? It has nothing to do with internal actual reality. It has everything to do with simply um, an attribution of credit. It's very much like a verdict in that sense, okay? Now, we typically think of the gospel as single imputation, right? So if we can do this analogy again, this illustration, this is you, this is Christ, and suppose you owe a million dollars, right? And we think of the gospel as single imputation. God imputes your debt to Christ. 
So the debt goes from your account to Christ's account, and then he pays it on the cross. He suffers the penalty you deserve, and, and, and that is the way the gospel is almost <coughs> always described. I want to show you that is entirely inadequate. It's not enough. Um, let me give you an, uh, a, a, an illustration. Let's go back to the trial court case. You are a criminal, uh, and uh, you've been found guilty, so you're in prison. And the governor decides to pardon you, Eric. We're going to pardon you. He's going to commute your sentence, and he's going to expunge your record, your criminal record, and then you're released. <coughs> now, class, is Eric home free? I mean, is he, is he, is he secure in life? Is he safe now? No, why not? Well, let's say that that is expunged, right? So it's a little bit different than, you know, I'm twisting the analogy a little bit, but let's say his record is expunged, right? It's like men in black, everyone gets the memory wipe. So Eric, Eric is no longer a criminal. Still has the heart and mind of a murderer. That's true, that's true. But I'm looking for something else. Yes, right. So, <laughs> what? Ca yeah, go ahead. Yes. So Eric still has to go out and get a job. He still has to make money. He still has to be a good citizen. Keep his nose clean. Follow and obey the laws. Not get caught again. Right? The murderer. Don't do it again. Right? So. The governor's pardon, therefore, don't you see in this, in this illustration, is not enough. It's not sufficient to bring him home free, to um, secure his happiness. And so single imputation, if the gospel is merely single imputation, all that does is bring us back to the garden. Because single imputation means debt is clear. Right? Debt is clear. Now you have the long, slow climb of righteousness. You're back where Adam is, and you have to prove your, you have to lay out the evidence of your, of your righteousness. I want, to know, I want you to know, um, oh, and uh, here's one more thing in my notes. So on the whole idea of single imputation, what I hear people say quite frequently, and every time people say it, it, it deeply bothers me. <laughs> um, um, I get very uh, uncomfortable and unhappy. Uh, I hear people say the gospel is a second chance. And uh, I want to be very generous and say that maybe the, the best way to look at it is it's sloppy language, a little bit misleading language. But I think second chance is sort of going on this idea of single imputation. Because what people are saying is that the debt is paid, right? Christ has paid your debt. Your record is clear. Now God is giving you a second shot at life, a second chance at life. Now you can go and do it. Go and live a life that pleases God. Go and be, go and live this righteous life. Earn your verdict again, right? I don't know if people necessarily say it like that, but second, but second chance, and people say, well, you get many second chances. It doesn't matter how many second chances I get. I'm doomed if the gospel is a second chance, okay? I don't want a second chance. You know what I want? I want double imputation. What is double imputation? The double imputation is this. Okay, so let me... Let me, let me write it again. This is you. This is Christ. Okay? You owe 
a million dollars. Christ has a million dollars. Okay? So your debt is imputed, credited to Christ. His million dollars is imputed and credited to you. Double imputation. Um, let's go back to the example of Eric as the criminal, right? Um, in double imputation, it would be like this. The governor says, I pardon you. Your sentence is commuted. You're released from jail. Your record is expunged. But more than that, the state is going to put into your bank account a million dollars. Now you're a millionaire. Not only that, but we're going to give you a whole new identity. You are a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. You're a war hero. Everywhere you go, um, soldiers and police officers salute you. All the doors are open because everywhere you go, you're an honored guest. You're a VIP. That, that is the gospel. Do you understand? It's double imputation, right? It's not just that our debt is cleared, Christ has paid our debts, but Christ's righteousness is given to us. And I want you to really see um, how, again, scandalous, and it should make us really uncomfortable, because the, 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 the natural response, if, if you see this, right? If you see this, and you understand this, the natural response to, is to say, well then, I guess it doesn't matter how I live, right? It doesn't matter, um, I might as well just sin as much as I want, because I already have this verdict. I already have this identity uh, of righteous. And I want you to see that that is a very, if you, if you can say that, you understand justification. If you don't say that or if you don't think that, you don't quite feel the offense or the scandal of it. Because justification has nothing, so let me say it very, very emphatically, let me say it repeatedly, justification has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your record. It has nothing to do with your thoughts. It has nothing to do with anything that you have done your performance. Right? Because justification is, is a verdict that is external, but it has nothing to do with who you are on the inside, your internal reality. It's just a declaration. And a lot of people um, in, in, uh, in theology, the term that sometimes is used is justification is a legal fiction. Okay, a legal fiction. So let me give you an, another illustration, right? Because I feel like this is so difficult to grasp that you, you, I just got to pile on the illustrations. Suppose there's a failing school. And um, the, the, the students aren't learning at the school. The teachers hate the students. The principal does drugs. Terrible school. So the state sends a state inspector to investigate the school. He interviews everybody. He looks at all the conditions. And he says, this school deserves an F rating. This school, is, this, this school needs to be shut down. And, and, um, and the state needs to come in and, con and uh, state control. But what happens is the principal says, hey, here's $10,000. You know, give us a good rating. The state inspector, being a corrupt person, a greedy person, says, OK. So he fills out his report. He says, this school rating is A. 
This is a fantastic school. It's a wonderful school. Um, everything is going well. I want you to know that's justification. Do you understand? And unless you say that's wrong, <laughs> that's corrupt, that's, that's, how can that be? You don't understand justification because justification has nothing to do with your merits or your records. In fact, it's contrary to the record. You are a failing school, but the state inspector has decided to give you an A, right? Um, and justification, and if you understand double imputation like that, um, it, 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 it helps you to understand why Jesus had to live for 30 or so years before he, he died, right? Have you guys ever wondered, why didn't Jesus just come down as a fully grown man and then die on the cross and then rescue us in that way? Why did he have to live? Why did he have to become born a man and then live for 30 years before he, before he was crucified? And, you know, there's, you know, I remember asking this question as a child, and I remember I, would, I used to receive all kinds of answers. Sometimes my teachers would say to me, well, it has to do with the fact that Jesus had to teach us for three years. That's true. He had to show us how to live for him. That's true. But I want you to know that what Jesus was doing is he was doing, he was, he was earning our million bucks. Do you understand? As a human being, as a man, he, every moment of every day, he did what was absolutely perfect. There was nothing that he could have done better. No one can go back and scrutinize and audit his life and say, this could have been a little bit better. Every thought was pure. Every motivation and every word that he said glorified God, helped others. It was other-oriented. Every thought was beautiful and perfect. And when you understand that, do you understand the power of this? It's not just that your debt is attributed, imputed to Christ. His righteous life is imputed to you. Do you see? His entire record, the beauty, the moral beauty of his life that is unequaled, unparalleled, that cannot be improved upon is given to you. And I want you to know that this doctrine of justification is incredibly powerful because in your darkest moments, right, um, when you hit rock bottom, when you're mired in sin, um, I think the default sort of uh, instinct of our hearts is to say, um, I'm justified because of my good works. So you're mired in sin, you're caught in habitual sin, you're shocked at your own sinfulness, and then you feel really down. Why do you feel down? Because you say to yourself, I feel good if I'm doing good, but I feel bad if I'm, if, if I'm, if I'm uh, disobeying God. Because the instinct of a heart is justification by good works. But in that moment, you should remind yourself, you've already received the verdict of righteousness. Already. When God looks at you, he looks at the perfect life of Christ. Right? Um, as you get older, because you can't do as much, yeah. since we're, we're performance-based already, so I mean, that, that helps me just knowing I, I'm not being judged because I couldn't get up as easily at 6 o'clock in the morning and do the 100 things I could do 30 years ago, so it's a lot more than just a, a dark time. Yeah. Really I mean, it's, it's like this, right? The, the criminal who receives the pardon, but also the second identity, he wakes up every morning. He looks at his bank account. He's a millionaire. 
he looks at his shelf. There's a Congressional Medal of Honor. Everywhere he goes, he receives praise and acclaim. That's you. You are constantly you're, you're receiving the, the, the acclaim and the applause of heaven. Right? And you're waiting for the final reality. But, but let me read 2 Corinthians 5.21. God, this is, second, this is double imputation. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Right? So that's, what does that mean? To be sin for us, it means our sins are imputed to Christ so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that Christ's righteous rec- uh, record is imputed to us. Double imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is double imputation. That's justification. That is the gospel. Okay? Do I have time for my illustration? I do not. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip the illustration um, on Gattaca. I love this illustration. I'm so tempted to use it, but I'm going to... Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll go super fast, okay? Because um, Jamie is smiling, so I'll do it for her. Um, Gattaca is, like all good science fiction movies, it's about a future world that is dark. It's a dystopic world. Because what happens is everything is based on uh, genetic engineering. But there are a few renegade children who are born the natural way, aka sex, right? Um, and that's Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke is just a normal person. And he has all the flaws and dispositions of being a normal kid. But unfortunately for him, it locks him out of a lot of jobs. Because in the future, all jobs are determined on genetic, on your genetic code. His dream is to become an astronaut. The, an astronaut is the highest echelon of, of jobs. It's the most prestigious job. It's the, it's, it requires the most tippy-top elite DNA, but he's locked out. In fact, the only thing he can get is a custodian at the Space Center. right? But what happens is there's a black market for DNA codes. And so there's another character named Jude Law. Jude Law is genetically engineered. And Jude Law has the, he has the most elite DNA record possible. But he suffers some sort of debilitating injury. So he's paralyzed. I think he's like a, 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 a paraplegic. And so what happens is that um, they do a swap. They decide, he decides to sell his DNA code to Ethan Hawke. And so Ethan Hawke goes to the examination for being an astronaut. And they say, can you give us a urine sample? So he goes behind the curtain. He gets out the bottle. It's kind of gross. But he gets out the bottle of uh, Jude Law's urine, right? And so he pretends to pee. And then he comes out and he hands the inspector, the, the examiner, the urine, the urine sample. He does some sort of test. And then it shows 99.999% DNA, and then the inspector says, congratulations, you're in. And then Ethan Hawke is startled and surprised. He says, that's it? Because what is he expecting? He's expecting them, this is an astronaut. He's expecting them to give him an IQ test. He's expecting them to say, well, let's give you a physical examination. Let's see if you're physically fit and you, you, you have an athlete's body. They don't care. All they want to know is the DNA record. And because they think he's Jude Law, he's in. That's the gospel. That's justification. That's imputation. Finally, uh, or number four, what is the role of faith? Um, Faith is not a meritorious work, but it's the empty hand that receives the gift. In theology, we say that faith is the instrument of righteousness, meaning it's the channel. It's it's, It's the occasion on which you receive justification but it is itself not the cause or the grounds of justification. 
what is the grounds or what is the cause of our justification class? Christ, Christ's righteousness. So our faith is not us adding on an extra bit of work, but it's the means by which we receive justification. In other words, it's the empty hand that receives the gift. It's the posture of a beggar. It's saying, I don't have any righteousness. So let me just go, uh, Romans 4, verse 3. Skip down to the last verse. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? Notice there's the word impute there. Do you guys see the word impute? Counted, right? So Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. Credit, other translation says it's credited. Uh, last, uh, one more thing before we go on to Roman, uh, Roman Catholicism. Um, there's an expression that I hear that I also dislike. There's a lot of confusion, I think, in terms of justification. People say justification is where you're made righteous. I really dislike that expression. Um, let me be generous and say it's a little bit sloppy or, or loose language. Um, justification is not that you're made righteous. Justification is that you're declared righteous that you're credited righteousness, right? You're attributed righteousness, but you're not made righteous. Why, why do you think this is, a, this is a problem? Why do you think it's inaccurate, or at least, at the very best, sloppy to say made righteous? For your sinner. Who's saying? For your um, keep going. I, you're going on the right direction. What do you mean? What does made righteous mean? Well, why is that incorrect? Or how about... Well, who, because you're not fully... So you're declared righteous now, but you're still living this life sinning, and it's not until you die that... Yeah, made righteous, I guess, would violate this whole idea of you're a justified sinner, right? Made implies process. Made implies reality, right? Like, for example, let me, get, let me, let me just use that word in a different context. Uh, my coach made me a good bowler. What does that mean? My coach made me a good bowler. It means that he did drills, you practiced, and you became a good bowler. You're actually a good bowler. That's not justification. You know what justification is? You are the world's worst bowler. <laughs> Every time you throw the ball, it either gutters or goes into the next lane. Okay, you are the world's worst bowler, but then the bowling association president comes, he inspects what you do, and he says, here's a certificate, you are the world's greatest bowler. Does that make sense? That is justification. You are not made righteous. You are declared righteous. You, 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 you receive the verdict of righteousness. And that verdict has nothing to do with who you are. Okay? Um, last point, the dispute with Roman Catholicism. All right. I think I can do this very quickly. Um, so this is the material break for Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Um, there's a lot of uh, other disputes about the role of Mary, the uh, pa papal authority, the role of saints, so many issues. But justification is the main reason why Catholicism and Protestantism broke. Okay? And so what is uh, the Catholic view on justification? The Catholics believe in justification because the word is there in the Bible. They do believe it's a verdict. Okay? They believe that this vert, um, they believe, uh, but, the, but the dispute is on what grounds do we receive this verdict of righteousness? That's the dispute. 
So they believe in the necessity of faith. They believe in the necessity of grace. But what they believe is this. When you first believe the gospel, you receive an infusion of grace, and it begins a life. It begins a process by which you have to attend mass, receive the sacraments, but in which you have to do good works, you have to obey God, you have to read the Bible. And then at the end of your life, after a life of of holiness, after a life of, of obedience, you receive the verdict at the end. You see, so let me, let me just graphically show you, because this is radically different than what Protestants believe in, what I believe the Bible, scripture teaches, right? So this is when you have faith, okay? Now, the Protestants believe that this is when you receive justification. Again, not because of faith, but through the instrument of faith, right? You receive the justification here at the beginning of your Christian life, right? And then you go ahead and you live a life of sanctification. So this is sanctification, right? We'll talk about that next week. But Catholics believe that you do not receive justification at the beginning of your Christian life. They believe you receive it at the end. Does that make sense? Actually, in their language, they would say it's progressive justification. You receive uh, justification as you progressively, as you get holier. But the final justification you receive at the end of your life. In other words, they do not believe um, it's a legal fiction justification. They believe it's actually based on the evidence of your life. And therefore, to put it very, very, very crudely, they would not say it like this, but, th- but this is sort of an accurate way to describe it. Justification is by faith, right? Because they believe in the necessity of faith. You can't even begin the Christian life without faith. Faith and works. Whereas Protestants will say we are justified by faith alone. That's right, not works. R.C. Sproul, that book, What is Reformed Theology? Yeah. Yeah, it's really a good book. It goes through that and really explains how that works. Yeah, this is what all Protestants believe, right? This is, this is what the Reformation believes. So just in case you feel like I'm, I'm, I'm making this up, I brought the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Here it is, okay? Um, and let me read to you uh, uh, doctrine number 1990, okay? This is their definition of justification. Listen, justification is not only the remission of sins. Remission means taking away, expunging of sins, but also the sanctification notice the language, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. Justification detaches man from sin, which contradicts the love of God and purifies his heart of sin. So the Roman Catholic Church is saying that our, just, our verdict sorry, is ultimately based on good works, on sanctification, on inner renewal. And I want you to know that this is enormous. This difference between the Protestant, the Reformation, and the Catholic Church that is so huge, that is so significant, that the Protestants said, you've lost the gospel. That is not the gospel. Because what you're saying is it's not based wholly, solely on the merit of Christ. And the Roman Catholics will say, their response will be James chapter 2. All right. So let me read to you James chapter 2. Let me go through it very, very quickly. Because James 2, indeed, on the surface, seems to contradict everything that I've been saying today 
and the, and the Reformation view of justification. James re, uh, writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And then listen to verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me, James says, your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father, listen, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, crucial verse. You see that a person, listen to what James says, is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What do we do with that? I feel like we've run out of time. We'll just pick this up next week. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Let me try to respond. Let me retort, offer my retort to the Catholic Church. So the key to understanding what James is saying is he's talking about two kinds of faith. And you see that in verse 18, right? Um, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He's actually here talking or contrasting two kinds of faith. Because what happened is that in the early church, there was a group of people that sort of had a distorted view of Paul's gospel or what, the gospel that Paul was preaching. And they were saying faith alone. Now, faith alone is a Reformation slogan, but I want you to erase your mind of that. This is the early church. And so there was a group of people, a group of Christians who were saying faith alone, faith alone. And what they meant by that is, I have faith. I've received the verdict of righteousness. Woohoo! Time to partay, right? Visit prostitutes, you know, uh, uh, drunken parties, right? Uh, immorality. And so James is responding to that group. The faith alone group. That was their slogan, faith alone. And that's why in verse 17, he's confronting that error, right? He says, so also faith by itself, right? He's referring to that slogan. If it does not have works, is dead. So he's, he's, he's talking about two kinds of faith. Dead faith and true faith. Dead faith says, which is no faith at all, right? Dead faith says, I have faith, woohoo, party. He says, that is dead faith. That's not real faith. That's fake. That's spurious. True faith, he says, will always produce fruit. So Luther has a fantastic expression or phrase to describe this. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. All right? So James is not saying, therefore, that we are justified by works. Okay? And, and here, I want, let me give you the analogy of a tree. See, how do you know that a tree is alive? Because it produces fruit. But does the fruit give the tree life, right? So here's a tree. Here's the fruit. <laughs> does the fruit 
give infused life into the tree. No. The fruit is the evidence that the tree has life. But the tree has life on its own accord, right? For its own reasons. And so we're not justified by works, but works is the evidence, it's the fruit that we are justified. Does that make sense? So what, 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 what do we do with verse 24? James says, but you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And here I think James is doing the same thing Paul does often, which is that he's speaking in shorthand. He's not fleshing everything out. It's not a theological textbook where he's making sure he crosses all his T's and dots his I's. And so what he's saying is, a per, uh, you see that a person is justified, and then what is elliptical there, what is missing there, but what is implied, if you read the whole thing, and in fact, if you read the whole Bible, is a person is justified and evidenced by works, and not by faith alone. The faith alone being dead faith. Does that make sense? So it's very confusing, because you think that he's talking about only one kind of faith, right? But he's talking about two kinds of faith, and when he uses the word faith alone, he's referring to dead faith. And when he's referring to works, He's not talking about works um, in the Catholic sense. He's talking about faith in which there's always evidence of works, meaning true faith, alive faith, living faith. Living faith will always produce good works, but good works is not the grounds. It is not the, it is not the um, cause of your justification. It is the evidence of your justification. That is our response to the Catholic Church. Not only that, there's Romans 3, there's Galatians 2, there's all of Scripture. <laughs> Right? Scripture interprets scripture. Everything is an comp- is a, is a, is a integrated web. So anything that is confusing, you need to understand in light of the whole. Any questions? Or comments? But not by a faith that is alone. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That's the gospel. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this doctrine of justification. That because of Jesus Christ, because of his righteous record, and because of his death on the cross, we receive this verdict that we are hungering for, that we are looking for. We have it now already. We have this verdict of righteousness. And now, let us live a life worthy or reflective of that verdict. Let us live a life that honors you, uh, a life of sanctification, knowing that we already have this verdict, that we already have this identity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, everybody.